Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's it going? How are you feeling about the Xbox 360 draft results? Which Oh, well, that's that's I knew you'd bring that up. That's all you want to talk about. You must be <laughs> feeling pretty pleased with yourself. Well, I don't understand how I went from having 30-odd percent of the vote to you know high 50s in just a few days and i can't work out why people thought your list seemed better read out but my list seems better written down that's quite confusing any thoughts it's on because that? all the jokers voted for me you know like all the kind of the weirdo castle stands <laughs> give me those free votes without even listening to the episode but once people actually listen to the games they vote for you your end gamer sort of cronies are all coming exactly out and my basically. family <laughs> Yeah, second cousin Thomas and all those people. Do you know what uh, the yeah. really annoying thing is? Is in that early stage where I do pull ahead, I sometimes I vote for you out of like sympathy because I think, oh, well, he'll probably be feeling pretty low right now. <laughs> and then when you do pull ahead, every time I go on there, not only do I see that your bar's bigger, it's got my little <laughs> tick in it from where I gave you that sympathy <laughs> vote. Well, I guess there's a lesson learned from this draft, not to ever do that again. And yeah, just I'm never doing that again. But uh, I, also, yeah. I don't want to retweet it out, and then people are like, oh, look at this guy, he voted for himself. <laughs> yeah, uh, I sort of see the dilemma there. I, I wouldn't have minded losing this draft, because the two top tenists were very good. It wasn't like I had to watch you you know, win the N64 <laughs> draft without GoldenEye or Perfect Dark. It wasn't that that sort of mm. thing where I was cursing your name. I thought you had a very good list, and so did I. So, uh, yeah, the important thing is we all had fun, and uh, I won. Yes. So, uh, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> well, you're currently winning. Uh, yeah, that's true. It may have changed by the time. Some kind of Christmas-style miracle may have occurred to turn <laughs> the vote around. <laughs> Please let it be so. <laughs> okay, looking forward to the much more cursed um, PS3 draft, which we decided mm-hmm. we will do either in July or August. So, uh, look forward to that. But Matthew, for now, we have another special guest. This week's guest is Edge Deputy Editor and UK Freelance Veteran, Chris Schilling. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Um, it's We're fairly early in the new issue cycle, so it's, it's kind of the calm before the storm. Nice, um, nice. Ask me in two weeks and I might have a, <laughs> might have a very different answer. Well, it's I, good to put together the big summer issue before... Well, I guess the, um, the all the announcements are happening at the beginning of the issue cycle rather than the end, right? So you're not all cramming mm-hmm. it in in three days. You get a bit of time to actually figure out what matters and stack it accordingly. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Alex is just, uh, I think he's flying out in the morning for us. Um, so yeah, he's going to be uh, on the ground. Oh, you've got someone going to Summer Game Fest. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. So that's cool, Chris. So, how is Edge treating you these days? I, uh, you know, I, I, I hope well. I, I see some of the gifts you post, and you know, I can't <laughs> help but wonder. But uh, <laughs> how is uh, how is Edge going? Yeah, outside the occasional uh, Daniel Day Lewis moment, it's uh, <laughs> you know, it's pretty full on. Um, making magazines in in 2023 is is kind of tough, but it's it's always great to to talk to interesting people about what they're making and. You know, it's great to work with with really talented writers, and it, it's always a like a great feeling to get your copy in the post and um, just be able to say, "This is, you know, this is a thing that I made." Yeah, especially because you're, you know, you're making it to the same standard that Edge's Edge has always been. Like, I mean, you know, I enjoy reading the mag now as as much as I ever have, really. So, I know how miraculous it is to pull that off in you know the modern age. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, some kudos from me there. Thank you. <laughs> oh, um, some rare kudos. <laughs> I'm, I'm always nice to the guests. It's the listeners I'm not very nice to. Um, so, Chris, you're one of our first supporters on social media. What are your observations on the podcast after listening for that long and finally coming on? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I've been listening since, yeah, pretty much since uh, since the beginning. 
I think drafts are probably my favourite format. That mix mm. of um, memories of you know great video games that you there's always kind of stuff that um, like from the 360 era that um, the recent one that I was just like oh shit yeah of course um, and and then you have that and the mix with the sort of genuine sort of antagonism <laughs> when, yeah. when someone picks like uh, the other the other person's favorite choice but um, we've we've got too good though at hiding that anger I think there's a lot of kind of like oh good choice good pick where I think in our earlier hot hotter headed days <laughs> we we might have attempted to like pull a bit of a oh, well you know is fable too good or is gta <laughs> 4 actually good there was a bit more of that in the earlier drafts but well uh, you say that matthew but when i listened back to the draft episode and when i picked fable 2 and you went oh interesting i could hear the repressed rage in <laughs> oh interesting kind of like under underneath like the i was gonna pick that you motherfucker uh, undercurrents i think it is still there it's just much more under the surface yeah okay well it's nice to have you finally have you on chris so uh, thanks for taking the time we do appreciate it but um i guess to start with like what is your starting point with games chris what got you into them i'm sort of very much um showing my age here like my first i think my first exposure to video games was or certainly my first strong memory of them it was like an arcade game in holiday on holiday there was a, a sega racing game top down a vertically scrolling racing game called Monaco GP. Right. Um, not even Super Monaco GP, like <laughs> um, Just average that, Monaco. That's GP. that's how old we're talking. I think it came out in 1979. I looked it up uh, quite recently. So yeah, I think I was about like four or five at the time. And it's just this, yeah, like I say, vertically scrolling racing game. You drive in a straight line. The track sort of widens and narrows, but you'd only really be turning the wheel to dodge the cars. There's no like turns or anything like that. You know, not massively true to the real Monaco circuit, obviously. <laughs> um, and you'd have this these sort of weird skiddy ice sections, which made this sort of horrible noise. And um, so that that was sort of my first experience of video games. And then at home, it was like we didn't actually have any any consoles in the house. It was it was always like there was always this parental justification that a computer can do other things like you can do your homework on it and stuff like that so mm, mm. we had first of all we had a spectrum and then we moved on to the amiga like i was i was into magazines back then as well like i i read your sinclair and then moved on to uh amiga power when we had the amiga but yeah sort of favorite games around that era i used to love sensible soccer cannon fodder was another mm, one i remember nice. like uh, monkey island 2 as well which came on like 11 floppy discs <laughs> yeah it was yeah. like it was like like 11 discs so you know it had to be good um, <laughs> <laughs> like that was this has got the power of 11 games yeah this one game yeah and it was like just a giant pain in the ass to play because every time you sort of went to a different location it was like insert disc 7 or whatever right. um but yeah did you ever work out how to format a save disc on the amiga no uh, right. I, think, I think my dad probably did Did you have to say you <laughs> also had to do monkey island in one go <laughs> no we did we i think there was like i'm sure that it, like it came with a save disc as well like in the in the box not my not my copy was my copy legit i don't know uh, <laughs> every time i wanted to complete monkey island 2 or try and complete monkey island 2 i was starting from the beginning of monkey oh, island man. 2 um, 
I was one of the world's first Monkey Island 2 speedrunners, just by necessity. <laughs> Amazing. That's uh, that's cool, Chris. I guess from there, then, what's your, your journey with games after that? What are your formative games, I guess, as you, you know, are, are like late teens, early adult kind of time? Yeah, well, I mean, the weird thing is that at that time, obviously we didn't have consoles, but um, up the road, like I had two friends who had a Mega Drive and a SNES. And so there was always that thing of kind of coveting the stuff that they had. Like, I remember I used to play Super Mario World uh, around their house and that was just kind of like... It gave it sort of a magical quality because it was sort of unattainable. Mm. So I remember I, I sort of drifted away from games for a bit and then it was around the PS2 era and my sister got me like a... It was like a PS1 I got um, for my birthday and I was like, wow, that's a generous present. And then I, I didn't realise at the time it was like about... It, it like gone down in price to like about 30 quid or something like that. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how I got back into it it was really weird because i didn't play any of the ps1 era classics like my favorite game on the ps1 was sheep dog and wolf <laughs> um <laughs> is that a, is that a cartoon thing it was like a it was like a weird sort of sub metal gear stealth game where you played um, <laughs> this kind of i can't remember what it was called it was like the the warner brothers wolf character it was a right. bit of a wily coyote type but uh, but not that one um, some kind of cursed relative of Wiley, Wiley Coyote. They couldn't even get the the, the proper Wiley Coyote. Yeah. Um, Sam Sheepdog and Ralph Wolf, apparently. Oh, yes, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Iconic character. Absolutely, yeah. And we, we had um, had South Park Rally as well, which oh. it's, it's kind of a miracle. I, st- I stayed interested in games after that, really. But it was... I remember around the time, like, it was around the time that the GameCube was about to come out, and... Um, that was like, at the time, I, I just like had a little bit of disposable income and it was like quite cheap. Like I think mm. I think the GameCube was like about £129 or something like that. Yeah. I always remember seeing a preview of Mario Sunshine in NGC magazine. It was back when it was, re- it was like really wide. It was like as wide as it was tall. Oh yeah, that mic was huge. Yeah, and I remember reading that and just being incredibly excited about mario sunshine so i thought yeah the you know the gamecube's the next uh that's the next console for me and then i got that and it it was all about uh super monkey ball for me like monkey target in particular mm-hmm. um and rogue squadron as well that was that was one of those real kind of graphics will never get better than this moments you know mm. um and they never did <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's interesting then so i guess there's uh maybe a gap in your knowledge around the ps1 and 64 era but have you gone back and filled in those gaps or do you just accept that as an adult living in adult life you're just going to have gaps where you've got life shit to do yeah i mean <laughs> yeah i mean a little bit i did i did go back and i played metal gear solid i played some of the i think vagrant story was on was on the ps1 wasn't it yeah yeah that was one i went back to and yeah n64 stuff like just just the kind of Nintendo classics like Ocarina of Time and Mario 64 and stuff like that. And then it was really for me like where I really kind of got interested, like even more interested in games was was the handheld era. We had Game Boy Advance SP and like Advance Wars in particular and WarioWare like around that sort of time was, yeah, that was sort of a really formative moment. I have this quite distinct memory of you writing something for us about advance wars about like obsessively playing it at work under your desk yeah or, uh, 
Did yeah. I imagine that? Is that real? <laughs> no, that's entirely true. Yeah. Um, so I was working at a firm of solicitors and I was I was sort of in the accounts department. I had like an upstairs office. I'd just had a promotion. I had this upstairs office. And I remember I was playing Advance Wars and it was about like three o'clock in the afternoon. So there's no way I could sort of say, there's no way I could argue it was my lunch break or anything like right. that. Um, and I heard my boss coming upstairs and I was like, right, I've got to put this away in in my drawer and, and not get caught playing this game. And I literally just couldn't stop playing it and it just he just walked in the room and just saw me playing advance wars and i was i was really really lucky because he was just like a sound guy he he knew i was generally sort of putting in the work and he just said don't, <laughs> don't let anyone else catch you playing that this is how you repay us for your promotion chris <laughs> yes. yeah instead he pulls out his gbsp and goes let's fight yeah, let's play. <laughs> and you're like this is the best day of work ever <laughs> yeah. um I also love the idea of you playing Metal Gear Solid after Sheepdog Award and being like, <laughs> yeah. guy who has only ever seen Boss Baby sort of vibes. Yeah. 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 Um, Very much. This yeah. is what a real stealth game looks like. You know. mm. but, um... Yeah, looking forward to the uh, time extend on that one, which I'm inevitably uh, coming soon. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting, though, Chris. So I, I guess um, at what point did you know you wanted to explore games as a career? You mentioned there you had... Um, a real life civilian job, and um, <laughs> you obviously made a leap at some point into into writing. So, what was that journey like? It was kind of around that time that um, I joined the Games Radar forums. Um, I don't know if either of you were ever familiar with that, but um, not, not big forum guys, I don't think. No, no, no. Just Final Fantasy forums. I cannot t- talk about on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'd kind of graduated from Nintendo around that time. I got a PS2. I then went on and got an Xbox because um, just purely because of Outrun 2, I think it was. Yeah, so I, I was just really enjoying talking about games on, on forums and stuff like that. And then um, I started my own fan site called Press Start Online. It was just Press Start at first. Like The plan was to make a magazine. Um, that was the ultimate goal because I just love magazines so much. That's a cl- an absolutely classic game blog name. It is. Isn't it? <laughs> Press start. Pick pick some gaming terminology. <laughs> yeah. We had this weird scoring system, which was like we had two scores. We had like a head score and a heart score. Ooh. The idea really, I think, was like the head score was like the edge score. Right. And then the heart score was kind of more like very much the reviewer's sort of personal tastes right the idea was that you know you got an idea. games master or <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah there was a few people that uh wrote for that website who've since sort of made a career from it nathan brown edge editor former mm-hmm. edge editor nathan brown olivia white who writes for wadget our games now oh, yeah, um yeah. and john denton who you know samuel and i remember john did like one piece for the site and he sort of asked me who I wrote for, he assumed this was just a sideline and I had a regular writing gig and I said, you know, no, this is just a sort of hobbyist thing. I don't really have any experience. And he was like really surprised. He sort of said, you should, you know, you should try and get work uh, kind of thing. And he just applied for a job at Games TM. I don't know if it was like staff writer or reviews editor or something like that. Mm. And he got that job and then sort of after a while, I think he'd been there like probably about six months, he said, would you be interested in, in freelancing for us? So that's, oh, nice. of course I said, yeah. And then, uh, huh. so that's how I got my break. 
is who you know. Mm. <laughs> How did uh, I, I've got to ask? What would Metacritic make of head or heart score competition? God, yeah, I I imagine they do like a an in between. The split the difference. Split the difference, yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. So, you know, sort of self made to a large extent. We've got to get John on this podcast at some point, Matthew, but he reacts to albums now for a massive audience. So <laughs> he's, he's too busy just reacting to everything. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure if I asked him, he'd be up for it. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I would l- imagine him reacting to this podcast. That would make such a great. Because his thumbnails are fantastic because you see his expressions <laughs> and then you see the name of the album. I'd love to see him react to our versions of the theme tune that we did on episode 100 for example <laughs> that might be a uh, good content or very cursed um probably both at the same time okay so from there chris what's your freelance career like because you have been you know doing this for a long time and i think that gamespeed is lucky to have you um frankly because you know there is certainly an exodus that has occurred <laughs> in the whole time that i've been there basically of people you know, leaping over the fence to PR like I have or moving over to other industries, sometimes just leaving the industry entirely. And, you know, you have kept going with it, which I, you know, like I say, I appreciate that, you know, your steady hand is is there um, to, to, you know, get, bring edge to life every month. So what's that journey been like for you? And I suppose, like, what keeps you doing it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of like quite a, a difficult question to answer. <laughs> I mean, I sort of guess I, I had like quite a baptism baptism of fire with my first review like the first review i did was it was like a really hardcore jrpg called um shin migami tensei digital devil saga i quite liked the story of it but it was like super hardcore i found it a bit of a slog i think i like i played it for about 40 hours i think i gave it a six and when it was edited they kind of said it reads a bit more like a five can we you know not not the score down one and then i remember the first very first comment i got on a forum like someone had just seen the score and said either the writer didn't play the game or hates jrpgs and i was like right okay so that was like very much an immediate insight into the kind of feedback you could expect it was like like if that doesn't put you off then it's just a case of like once i had my foot in the door um started doing stuff in more places it was just kind of it was really nice to have that sort of variety of stuff even when i was at imagine like i very much still had one eye on all the stuff that future was doing like i pitched to endgamer a couple of times and it was sort of turned down i didn't quite have the tone right and then i did that wasn't like, that wasn't to me i should say no 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 it was uh i think it, i think greener was editor back then yeah. like i think it was that sort of time but my in there was i wrote a feature about chibi robo mm. and then sort of started just kind of doing stuff for future from there I, I just remember you being kind of like very on the end game wavelength in terms of like the stuff you were into or the, the stuff you seemed very knowledgeable about was mm. like exactly kind of our bag it's kind of not super obscure but like one step beyond the mainstream kind of you know chibi robo is perfect kind of example i was always sort of um in all the years of using you as a freelancer and and you know i think i've used you on everything i've I've worked on i was always kind of like amazed that you 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 basically take not i say you take on anything in terms (laughs) of like uh not like wow this guy will eat so much shit it's amazing (laughs) um but i mean there is some truth (laughs) in that like It's me, the bin. Yeah, <laughs> fill me up. <laughs> no, I remember. I remember. I had like I reviewed like I think it was two real, just absolute pieces of shit for O and M. It was around the Wii U launch. 
I think I, I mean, gave them like... A, I mean, that could have been many games. Yeah, there was like... Uh, there was a game called, I think it was Sports Champions, and I think I gave it like 12% or something like that. So. Oh, it was, I think that was... It's not like Ubisoft's attempt at Wii Sports. It was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think the thing what I actually I was going to say was more about like... Like I always thought, oh, you just know you can write about anything. Like whatever game we gave you, the review would be super con- in it, convincing. And there is that is part of being a freelancer, I think. Is kind of being able to like be a bit of a chameleon and kind of fit into anything. But I was always kind of like, he either knows every game ever, or he's just really, really good at freelancing this way. <laughs> yeah, or, or just a just a practice bullshitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that is isn't that the the secret sauce to working, you know, on staff at, in games media or enduring a games yeah, media yeah. is how you bullshit your way through genres you don't know that well that's part of the art of doing it right yeah 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 i think i mean i think as much as anything i just like played as much as i possibly could i didn't take it too seriously but at the same time i, I was always kind of wanting to do a good job because i was just sort of constantly aware of like the thing about freelancing is that you you can never entirely relax because you, you're always just sort of worried that you know where the next commission is coming from so you always just sort of want to do a good job and I I guess after a while I sort of um, ended up I got kind of a rep as a, a sort of safe pair of hands really mm. and something I think I've noticed um, since becoming an editor is that there is a real sort of value in someone who is just kind of really reliable like you can get oh yeah there are some like mm. really spectacular writers there is as much value I think in, in someone who is just kind of consistently decent than someone who is kind of spectacular but a little bit flaky and maybe doesn't hit all the deadlines 100 (laughs) percent yeah absolutely so i suppose chris because you were in freelance for so long for people who don't know how that life differs from a staff position could you give us a little bit of a outline of what the i guess the pros and cons are of doing it weirdly um just because of the way i've kind of done things like a lot of people start out in a staff position then move into freelance and I've kind of done it the other way around and probably only because of the the pandemic really that I ended up because um future sort of went to allow remote working so it's like it's weird to think that if the pandemic hadn't happened that I might not be edgy's deputy editor but so Ooh. Yeah, from my point of view, it's not actually like I'm still just kind of sat in front of my PC most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not massively changed, but I I think the the major pro of freelance life is is that you you do have that freedom in determining your routine a little bit more. Like you have more of a say in when and how you work. Although that is still kind of contingent on you know the deadlines that you've been set. You know, in theory, you do have the freedom to choose your hours and what you do, but the reality of it is that sometimes you do need to accept um, reviews of Ubisoft shovelware games, <laughs> you know, to pay the bills. Yeah, right. And the other thing, which which doesn't really go talked about a lot when um, when you're talking to freelancers, is that when like staff changeovers and stuff like that, like you always have to kind of try and win over like new editors like people you've not worked with before that's like a weird that's a really weird thing to kind of have to do because you can be like really comfortable with an editor just just yeah yeah and then sort of someone else comes in and they don't really know you they're not really that familiar with your work and you've got to kind of try and convince them that you're still you know worthwhile kind of thing so right there's always that sort of precarity of it yeah I i never really thought about it in that sense 
just kind of interesting to kind of sort of how you manage your freelance. So I did I did a year of not not very successful freelance after I was made redundant, where I I just wasn't very good at it. Like I didn't really know how to kind of pursue work and. Um, because I'm an egotistic asshole, I was I was sitting there waiting everyone to come to me. Yeah. Uh, because I was like, well, of course they'll come to me. Yeah. Um, don't they know who I am? You know, do you aim to court a certain number of like relationships? You know, we, did you think of it as like, well, I've got like three bits of regular work from here or there, or or were you just always hustling? Not always. I, I think I was I was slightly fortunate in that when I was doing it, certainly around like the early days there were a lot more places just just generally yeah you know particularly in print um which was just sort of became my forte and then i'd pick up the odd the odd um online gig like eurogamer and and, and places like that mm. but yeah it was i think like by that point i was established enough that enough people knew of me and knew that you know they could give me whatever and i just do like a a reasonable job with it <laughs> um, you yeah. know so it was there were, you know there's always going to be a bit of hustling and and you know particularly it's like the stuff that I pitched most was stuff that I really wanted to write I think if you do enough of those and if you do a good enough job then you'll sort of get asked back to do sort of other stuff like um you know if you do like a really good job on a feature you might start getting asked to do reviews and stuff like that so like I think people you know, certainly kind of stressed out editors on deadline, like found some value in me as, as someone who would kind of turn around something that was sort of fairly, you know, the copy yeah. would be fairly oh, clean was, it... and, and, and what have you. And not necessarily absolutely amazing, but like consistent, oh, but, you know. Oh, always super strong. Like, honestly, you were like our, our like break glass in case of emergency. <laughs> like you can always, always run like very flexible. Like I, you know, it was great. I'd sometimes feel bad. I, I, some, I, I, don't, I would often think like if we've really asked you to like eat some garbage at like a moment's notice, it's kind of like, I owe you something good down the line and hopefully, hopefully you, I think you've got to do some, some decent, some sort of like, more prestige stuff for us along the way <laughs> oh yeah 100 percent. yeah there was always yeah um certainly when i was doing stuff for um endgamer and o&m i might have two absolute pieces of shit and then like there would always be something really good around the corner um like, ah the wii equation <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was just the wii era generally wasn't it it was just like yeah <laughs> Were you like specifically keen or interested in reviews? Because I know that's most of the work you did for us was reviews. I know some people like they're feature freelancers because they think you know that the the, the the money per hour just doesn't make any sense. Like, did you ever sort of think about it in those terms? After a while, I certainly did, and I kind of you know certainly when I started doing stuff for Edge, you know I got to realizing that that features and interview stuff was was kind of the way to go really. Mm. Um, I still did a lot of reviews just because I felt like that was like more of a strength, really. Mm. Um, I just didn't have kind of quite as much experience as uh, at feature stuff because, like, a lot of that always, well, I mean, not always, but like, seemed to be done kind of in house, like the big important features, um, mm. certainly. And it, you know, and other sort of really experienced freelancers who'd who'd done. Um, you know, done that stuff in the past would tend to get that sort of work, and so you just kind of like if they want you to do a review, then you then you just do it. What were your highlights along the way 
uh, in the freelance world, Chris? What's which features or reviews really stick with you from your time doing it? I, I don't remember individual sort of features and reviews so much as like kind of like people I've interviewed and um like a couple of trips that I've been on. Like I got to go to Tokyo quite early on. We were the first we were told this anyway, that we were the first Western journalists to be allowed in Square Enix HQ. And this was sort of around the time of Final Fantasy twelve, Revenant Wings and um right. The World Ends With You. Mm. And I remember visiting this this sort of very 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 basic kind of japanese office and there were all these people kind of all these staff sort of like looking over their cubicles going who the fuck are these guys (laughs) um we were literally just like shuttled through in like five minutes they were like wow that was amazing wasn't it like you're the first western journalist it was like we were literally there five minutes (laughs) it's like technically yeah (laughs) but we were there for six days so it was like we spent like quite a lot of time like all the work was done in a single day it was like a few interviews and the rest of the time was just like like we went into the we went to the hotel bar that they have in in lost in translation that was nice uh, that was really nice we did a lot of karaoke we on the on the final night we recorded a CD that will hopefully never ever see the light of day (laughs) (laughs) yeah they had this thing where um you could you could like hire a booth and they just keep bringing you like free beer like these massive jugs of kirin beer <laughs> and yeah like two days later we got an email from the pr who sent us an email sent i've listened to the cd it's fucking terrible let us never speak of this again oh my god <laughs> so yeah that, it's like the setup for like a very dark thriller or like something. <laughs> yeah. we all did something terrible together in tokyo that must never come yeah. out but it was just it was just karaoke <laughs> Um, I uh, yeah. massively envy going on a press trip for The World Ends With You and Final Fantasy XII Revenant Wings. Truly a different age, a six-day press trip <laughs> in Tokyo for two DS games. That, um, uh, really yeah. good DS games, but still, yeah. you know. But yeah, I mean, the the, the big... Like, I've, I travelled to a couple of other places. I went to Singapore. Um, I went to E3 um, during the year of Connect, and literally mm. all I had to do was file a single thousand-word piece for The Observer. Um, wow! So that was that was amazing, um, um, but the the bit the really big one was um, getting to interview Miyamoto in in Paris. Um, nice. Yeah, it, it was for. But I mean, the weird thing was, it was it was for New Super Mario Brothers Wii, which is like uh, not my favourite Mario game. It's, it's the old monkey paw scenario yeah, with Miyamoto. <laughs> Everyone gets to meet him, but <laughs> for Steel Diver or something like that, yeah. you know. But we like we travelled down on the Eurostar, and there was me, and um, it was the first time I met Christian Donlan, and we sort of really hit it off along the journey. We just got chatting. And there was a guy from Wired who was clearly not a video game guy at all. I think he called him like Miyamoto. <laughs> so yeah, we got there, and miyamoto was there like absolutely full kind of pr mode like just grinning like thumbs up and everything like that and <laughs> we got to play new super mario brothers wii with him i remember like afterwards like looking at donlan and we both said to one another he was really shit at that <laughs> like he's really like genuinely really terrible at his own game um and that was also the the 
I asked him a, a question about Wii Music in that interview and he sort of held his head in his hands for about like what felt like about a minute. Um, <laughs> it was probably about 10 seconds, but um, I remember um, the PR guy at the time, um, who's at Apple now, is a, a guy called Rob Saunders, bless him. Mm. He said he said to me, oh, you asked that very sort of delicately and he's he's really just jet lagged at the moment. But yeah. I was like, I just kind of completely panicked. Um, yeah, I just thought, oh God, what have I done? Um, but yeah, he, you know, he, he kind of, it was essentially, I, I was asking him, um, like it seemed like a, a thing that he was very personally invested in and like, how did he feel about how it, you know, it hadn't done as well as the other Wii games, you know, and he gave me like a very honest answer after kind of shitting me up with his with his initial reaction to it (laughs) but yeah that was um so yeah that was fun your next question was uh tell me about the uh the day you cancelled three projects at retro studios (laughs) and gave them metro prime (laughs) oh my god i just imagine (laughs) (laughs) that's really cool though because uh yeah you probably got more to the reality of him by asking a question like that and breaking him out of pr mode Mm. because it is quite hard to give a PR mode style answer to something like that when, you know, it's it, maybe it was, I guess, like you'd expose some kind of raw nerve or something like that. So, yeah, uh, yeah if anything, I'm sure it was good, just good colour for the interview. But um, I love him being shit, his game, being shit his own game. Did you just fall down lots of holes and stuff? I mean, I'm bad at New Super Mario Brothers Wii as well. So I mean, it was, it was the first time we'd all played it, so we were all like shit. Cause well, you just him. Been... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but you all just, you know, you bump into each other the whole time. But, um, oh, God, yeah, I remember. The, the other thing was that um, the the Wired guy picked up the controller, first of all, and he picked up, like, the Player One controller, and this, this PR guy just went, like, in a very serious tone, Mr. Miyamoto has to be Mario. <laughs> like, <laughs> put the controller down. You get, you know, he's not being blue-toed. No, he, he absolutely has to be Mario. So that, yeah, that's... God, yeah. What's really, what's <laughs> he picks up the player one controller. Miyamoto puts his head in his hands again for a minute, <laughs> and then just immediately like dives Mario into a hole, and then like you know just <laughs> on fire. And yeah, it's like I must um, be Mario. <laughs> Biff's it as Mario. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh my god. Is there anything else like that on the interview front, Chris? Where you were, you know, you've had a, you've had someone who you've been completely blown away by or overwhelmed by the experience, like all of the the biggest names I've spoken to have been sort of a mixture of sort of, you know, fairly kind of normal. Like the biggest disappointment I had was um, I went to Nordic Game. I met the wonderful Marsh Davis there. Um, He was covering it for Edge and I was doing it for Games TM at the time. Um, And Fumito Ueda, the, um, you know, the eco and Shadow of the Colossus guy, was there. And... I got a like a really short interview with him and the um, Toyama, who is the Siren Silent Hill director. Oh yeah. And Ueda was really just clearly could not be asked at all, and like barely said about three words. And Toyama was just a, by contrast, was an absolute delight, like just really friendly and happy. So it was it was really yeah. weird because like I went in like um interviewing the the colossus guy and and he was really sort of like just not into it at all um probably just caught him on like a bad day i did the bafta fellowship interview with a few people like for a few years they they did like a profile thing in the brochure which i wrote and 
I got to interview like people like um, David Braben and uh, Tim Schafer was a really good one. Um, oh, he yeah. was just yeah, he was just really really lovely. Just just really kind of naturally funny as well. Um, Did you uh, watch the Psychonauts documentary? Yeah, Jesus, yeah. It's what you see, what you get. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, very much. Like a lot of people just kind of don't really do the press thing and they're, they're kind of doing it under sufferance a little bit, but he was just kind of happy to talk about whatever. Sort of related to Tim Schafer, I, I, and not to kind of name drop, but I remember having a lovely interview with Elijah Wood around the time of Broken Age. It was kind of quite a short call and the PR was kind of constantly trying to end the call and he was just like, no, and was just happy to carry on. He was talking about how much he loved Kentucky Route Zero. He was just great. Um, so yeah, that was yeah. Cool. He always seemed quite a an authentic gamer. Um, didn't he end up playing a- a- Animal Crossing with a, a UK journo during lockdown? Did I imagine that? I think that did happen. Yeah, with someone like Louise Blaine or Emma Kent, they were like, "Hey, Elijah, do you want some turnips?" <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, sure." And then he was in their world, just pottering around, going like, "This is so cool." I was so jealous. <laughs> I uh, I always remember him from the um, PS2 uh, Lord of the Rings Two Towers game special features where he was the only one who played the game and was excited about the game. And then Viggo Mortensen just had that existential despair when he talked about the game. And it, the contrast was uh, quite the thing. Viggo putting his hand in his head for one minute solid. <laughs> Oh, that's um, that's a cool lineup, Chris. I, I mean, I wouldn't feel too bad about the Ueda thing, just because I don't think he's given that many interviews ever. Like, I don't, I don't feel like there's a, a whole bunch of them out there, or you know, that he's even as prolific as some of the other big Japanese creators in terms of interviews. So, you know, mm. you're probably probably not just you who had that experience. You know, no, I imagine not. And there had been like a a party the previous night, so he probably just like had a few too many. Like, I know Toyama has has talked. Um, okay. he's kind of a big drinker so maybe he sort of took him out for a few drinks and like Ueda's just kind of not used to like a, having a big night out and... It's a bummer though when you meet someone who has made stuff that you really admire and I, I, I know that you, you're you a huge fan of The Last Guardian right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely Was this interview before or after that? Oh yeah, it was, yeah, it was well before then It was like yeah, um, okay. much yeah. closer to the release great. of uh, Colossus it would be heartbreaking to meet someone behind something that you were like super into, who then turned out to be like a total bozo. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, like not so long ago, I did a very sort of short email interview with Phil Fish, who, like, I was always oh, yeah. a big fan of Fez, and um, it was like just contacting him was was really weird because he's such kind of he's so reclusive. But he was like, I was really pleased that he agreed to sort of talk to us for that because it, it was like a feature on um indie game the movie oh, yeah. um yeah so yeah he he was very kind of like his answers were kind of quite short but they were really good um mm. yeah that that was really nice and just like everyone around that actually like ed mcmillan was just an absolute joy like brought his kids on camera and everything he was just kind of probably as you'd expect and and then weirdly john blow who i've interviewed like twice now both times I've been warned before I know he's really prickly and difficult and he was actually really lovely like both times just like really happy to talk and um yeah so he he was kind of like a pleasant surprise in in, in a good way so Chris you did allude to it there but how did you end up on edge you say the pandemic kind of opened this opportunity up for you which uh I think for 
I think this actually the pandemic did make me realize just how limited opportunities were for people who were not willing to travel to Bath or Bournemouth before that and that you know that does sound very short-sighted and I completely own that but um, I was pleased nonetheless that people did get those opportunities when that when that happened and continue to get them so how did that come about how did you end up on Edge in the, during the pandemic? I'd written for Edge quite a lot um, before then I'd been writing for um, Edge since Edge Online was a thing so that's you know a long long time ago like I used to do kind of like a few sort of just like small online reviews and like one or two of those ended up in the magazine and then just kind of gradually worked my way up to becoming like a regular freelancer and then it was just before the pandemic actually that um it was when Nathan was just about to leave and he was sort of talking about um bringing me on board like as I was on a retainer they said well we'll put you down as like uh, contributing editor and so I, I was like paid x amount of money to write a certain number of pages each issue and then um, when Jen took over I was like kind of it, it felt a little bit more sort of collaborative then like I, I was more mm. heavily involved I did like um, a cover on like my first cover project was uh, Spelunky 2 mm. yeah that was that was an that was unbelievable that issue because it was it, that was kind of like a real sort of hail mary i was really lucky in, in the sense that i'd i'd spoken to derek Yu for a feature about a game he was making called ufo 50 which still hasn't come out so i had his email and just sort of said i knew spelunky 2 was coming out and um so i just said would we be able to do like an exclusive review uh, and a review cover for that so we ended up doing that so i think that sort of stood me in in good stead when towards the end of the year um jen left to go to media molecule so at that point they obviously needed uh someone to take over i think tony had interviewed like a couple of potential editors and that hadn't quite worked out um so he sort of said do you want to come aboard as as deputy so i said yeah that's uh, yeah so that's awesome i'm uh, yeah pleased you got the opportunity so I suppose, Chris, what is it about games media that still still appeals to you? Because I guess you're approaching two decades doing it, right? So what is it about it that, I guess, uh, I don't want to say keeps you coming back because it is a job, but I suppose what is what is appealing about it for you at this point? Uh, lack of alternatives, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, the money, obviously. Daniel Day-Lewis gif. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like th- there is... A huge amount of value in in what we do in what edge does certainly you know despite all the money in games it's i think it's i think it's really hard for, for high quality games coverage to get real traction online and it's it feels like it's harder for publications to justify the investment in that you know which which isn't to sort of denigrate the the work that a lot of people do and you know chat out to guide writers who because that is a really sort of thankless task mm. it feels important that that there is someone documenting what is happening in the medium at this time mm. and in print you get the sort of benefit of like you don't have the fear that it's going to be suddenly wiped from existence when someone in a suit looks at a spreadsheet and sort of you know says no and and it gets <laughs> closed down you know like edge you know we do have our own blind spots you know there are certain elements of the industry that we don't have the the time or the resources to properly capture but like just to try to curate a magazine every month that captures like a reasonable cross-section of of 
of the games industry you know at a particular moment in time that still feels like an interesting and a, a worthwhile and a and a rewarding thing to do and mm. you know like every every month you get to talk to people like like who are much smarter than you and work with really talented writers and you know just get to discuss and talk about and disseminate a subject that you all have this shared interest in and as absolutely exhausting as that can be at times that sort of feels like a worthwhile thing to at least attempt to do very well said <laughs> i think as well the the thing about print that you maybe forget if you haven't read something read a magazine for a while is that it lives outside of the the twitter sphere and the overall uh, like how the the relationship with games has become very linear over the past few years in terms of like it's a you know it's a tunnel of live streams basically is is what's kind of replaced what was there before and i think that something that feels like it lives outside of that but is authoritative and is covering other areas of games that you are maybe not talking about or thinking about on a daily basis is is refreshing and i feel like that that's what i kind of get from edge in, in its current form chris i think it's just that detachment from the thing i look at every day and a more level-headed lateral look at what is going on in games you know i don't know if that's the intention but that's that's how modern edge feels to me yeah i, I mean that's that's very gratifying to hear that because that's sort of like what we're going for i think as much as anything like mags can be a useful bullshit filter like there's so much mm. there's just so much out there right now and like i say there's going to be stuff that we miss because there's only you know so many of us and there's only so many pages we have but like just trying to get as broader cross-section of the industry and and kind of like really cut to the heart of what you know stuff that we find interesting stuff that we think is interesting mm. and that people want to read about and i do think that people who read edge kind of just yeah just appreciate that we sort of kind of try and tune out some of the bullshit a little bit and and kind of really yeah cut to the heart of of what's good in games um at the present time if edge is the bullshit filter Endgamer is the used filter, which has only collected all the bullshit in it. That's just all it is, is that. And that's kind of what this podcast is, to some yes. extent, I guess. Um... <laughs> it's okay, like, great. oh, I've got to touch that filter. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Let's take a break then, Chris, and we'll uh, come back and pelt you with some more questions about Edge. That feels like it's going to be good. So, uh, yeah, let's take a quick break and come back. Welcome back to the podcast. So, time to bother Chris with lots of questions about Edge magazine, which should be uh, should be good fun. So, Chris, do you remember what it was like when you were first commissioned by Edge? And did you approach it differently to any other freelance work that you'd done at that time? Yeah, I, I actually don't remember what my very first commission was, because it would have been for Edge Online. So, I like, I think of the first mag commission as my first proper Edge commission. Mm. The first commission I had was not the most glamorous one it was an interview uh a note <laughs> i should say it was an interview no shade on the interviewees it was two of the founding members of the yogs cast oh yeah um my old bosses yeah so <laughs> like not the most exciting gig on paper but it was exciting in the sense of i'm gonna have a piece published in edge and you know they were 
they were decent guys it was it was a nice interview i would say it wasn't hugely different to how i would have approached another commission for any like for any new publication because as, as a freelancer you're constantly aware of the need to make a good first impression partly just as a sort of pragmatic thing because you you're like i want more work from this person or this magazine or this website or whatever um but this being edge i probably sort of overthought it even more than i ordinarily would have done i've not sort of gone back and read it um recently but i think it was it was fairly sort of meat and potato stuff but nothing like really spectacular but like crucially good enough to to fit in edge without Mm. without anyone sort of immediately noticing like who wrote this bullshit you know (laughs) when i first wrote for edge I, which may actually have been my f- first ever bit of freelance, unless I did something for Games Master first. Oh, wow. I did a review of Spectrobes, the quite bad Disney Pokemon ripoff where um, you excavate fossils and then bring them back to life and then make them fight, which on paper is actually a very traumatic journey for that creature. <laughs> <laughs> I've been asleep for millions of years and I'm, oh no, <laughs> blood sports, is it? <laughs> Good. And not only was the review quite average, because I didn't really know how to write for Edge, mm-hmm. but I think it caused a huge stink with Disney because <laughs> it was like an early review of it. So like my first experience of Edge was like, you've caused us all this hassle. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret and Tony giving me quite um, stony looks across the office. <laughs> Amazing. You being a big Pokemon fan, of course, Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, that's like uh, they found the right guy for the gig there. <laughs> big mistake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, so it always felt to me that Edge, with Edge, you had to earn your reputation as a freelancer in a way that maybe wasn't comparable to working for other outlets. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true, Chris? And do you feel like you earned trust over time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, I think having done stuff for Edge Online, like on a weekly basis, like there was a group of us, and Donlan was one of them. There was like three or four of us would do like tiny reviews for the website every every week, and so they'd sort of got used to me that way. And then once I had my foot in the door a little bit more with this Yogscast piece, it was just kind of. I don't think I did any reviews for a little while. It felt like they had to get a sense of your critical radar a little bit. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of still the case now a little bit. Like, we rarely start any, any new freelancers on reviews. It's kind of like <clears throat> gauging, like, their tastes in general and, and just kind of, obviously, their writing quality as well. But... Um, I remember, like, I didn't really get that many pointers. There was a sort of, like, almost an understanding, or certainly, like, from my perspective, that you would read the mag. You get, like, the odd sort of stylistic thing here and there where they'd say, like, don't use this word or don't, you know, put this that way. But I would always sort of, like, compare the finished piece with, like, the draft that I'd submitted. And just to sort of try and figure out what worked and what didn't and you know figure out what had been changed although in like as i would later learn like in some cases that's just cutting stuff down to fit the page rather than the writer having necessarily done anything wrong. right i suppose like a good question i suppose to ask here sort of on top of that is what was your relationship with edge as a, as a reader because when i first started reading edge it was the early noughties and it was quite a I felt like quite a distinctive phase 
of the the mag's life in terms of these very conceptual covers they were doing but i remember even as someone who was primarily reading pc gamer and official ps2 mag around the time that that i was grateful that something like edge existed that treated games in this very elevated way so i suppose curious to know for you coming into it as a freelancer and then eventual staffer what was your relationship with the magazine i mean weirdly i was listening to the episode with nathan not so long ago and we have sort of weirdly similar relationships with edge in that we weren't really like massively into it to to start with like Mm. i i definitely have um issue one somewhere um in the house but after that it was and that was just kind of like wow i remember at the time thinking this is far too cool i'm not cool enough or smart enough to read this magazine but this is a kind of cool (laughs) thing to to have kind of thing and then sort of over time like the first time i really remember getting heavily into edge was one of the early-ish 10 out of 10s which was half-life 2 and that issue i remember had the ds on the front It, it was like a silver cover and it had the ds on the front and you could like flip it up like the the flap opened up and you got like the top screen of the ds mm. and i just remember i remember getting that and that was like at the time i'd i'd got a pst and i got an xbox and i remember reading the half-life 2 review and thinking wow that sounds amazing i really need like the next thing i need is like a gaming pc um <laughs> and i didn't get one of those for like a long time after that but that was like a really sort of formative moment in terms of my relationship with edge i I just kind of i remember that review being really memorable and and after that like i think i've got like every copy of the mag since then what was the significance of how edge reviewed games to you as a as a reader versus other outlets edge scores are always discussed differently to those of any other outlets and seem to get more scrutiny in some circles in fact they definitely do but why do you think that is? I mean, I think partly it's a it's a history thing. There, there's always been this sense of like authority to edge reviews, and I think I think some of that was like the absence of bylines, but also the tone of the mag. You got a sense of like here's a magazine that takes games seriously, which isn't to say that other mags didn't, but um, I always had the sense of edge being a little bit more unforgiving. Go, like going back to the press start thing like with edge it was always the sense of this is very much the head score not the heart score and i think they're still discussed differently to other outlets just because of the mag's own standing in the industry like it's been running for a long time i'd be the first to say it's not as big a deal as it once was but it still feels like there's enough people out there who think the word of edge has a certain weight to it and i think as someone mm. who was aware of edge from the beginning as you know i've read it like i say pretty religiously for the past 20 years you do feel a bit that weight yourself when you write a review like kind of bearing down you all that history uh and the need to get it right adds a certain pressure i think like probably more for certain for certain games than others how do you think edge's editorial style has evolved over the years and how do you define it now as the deputy editor it's a hard question to answer for for someone who's been close to edge for so long now like I think it's probably one of those things that's easy to see from the outside because a lot of what a lot of what defines edge is stuff that you I think when you've been writing for edge for a while you, you sort of absorb and intuit like the style over time it's weird it's it's like you have a very kind of there's a very basic style guide that's sort of barely evolved it's just kind of something that sort of happens almost by osmosis like that you understand what feels like the edge way of doing things and what doesn't Ugh. Like I remember always 
when I started out, I always found it quite daunting to begin with, not as approachable or, or as 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 welcoming, I think, as, as the, the kind of, you know, particularly the, the Nintendo Macs that I used to buy. I sort of like to think, like, over time, I think particularly since Nathan took charge, it felt a little bit more accessible. Like, you still see people saying Edge is kind of aloof and humorless and we don't love games, and I think that's largely from people who haven't read it in, like, probably 10, 15 years or whatever. Mm. Um, and, like, obviously we're not trying to make like jokes and puns on every line or anything but i think anyone who reads edge on a regular basis knows you know there are gags and puns and you know weird references and moments of sarcasm riasides and stuff like that it's kind of a riasides riasides is is very much that's what you call box outs (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know it's like kind of a subtle thing it's not real sort of in your face humor but it's definitely there yeah i think you know, up to a point in terms of editorial approach, I think to, it's always going to reflect the tastes of the people who make it. But at the same time, like some of that's about reflecting how the industry itself has changed. Like um, mm. like the rise of indie games, for example. I think during Nathan's reign, and particularly when Jen came aboard, there was a really kind of distinct shift in that direction that I noticed as someone who, who reads Edge and writes for it. And I mean, up to a point that was in line... You know, like I say, that was in line with the way the winds were blowing with the industry. That though, Ed, uh, like Jen was particularly brilliant at keeping up with that side of things. Like the editorial style, like I, th- I think it's always going to feel like um, a collaborative thing. Like there aren't many examples I can think of where Edge feels like, you know, a particular kind of single person's personality comes through. It's like the product of of everyone yeah. who makes it, including the freelancers. I think there is some truth in the idea that. A style guide is as much about a set of people sharing a set of values as it is about a document that's written down somewhere that says this is what it is. Yeah. I think that, and I felt that on PC Gamer as well when I, uh, I remember a colleague left and uh, really a really pivotal uh, sort of member of the team, um, really important member of the team left and said to me that, well, you know, you and you and Phil Savage are still here, so you have what you know we consider the PC Gamer UK mag values are still are still here and then you kind of pass those along to the new staff and that sort of thing so yeah i think there's a i think there's a lot of truth in that and i do think that as well if i was to have uh, i guess an attempt at what i think an edge piece would look like 15 years ago versus one now i think there would be the approach i would take would be a a gradual opening up to you know a slightly lighter on its feet way of writing sometimes is that fair Chris? yeah i think that's absolutely fair i think nathan was a big part of that i think yeah like i mentioned the humor a little bit like certainly nathan punched that up a little bit i think you can see if you read like his hit points newsletter like that feels Mm. like a distillation of everything that he he did so well during his time in charge and like some of that was kind of making it a little bit more approachable I'm interested, actually. Like for PC gamer, was the, were those values ever kind of really sort of clearly articulated, or was it something that you just sort of ended up intuiting like over time? Because that sort of feels like how it's been with Edge. It's kind of something that comes about like almost organically, like through discussions that you have with with the other staff. Gosh, it's I I, I we definitely had a style a style guide of sorts, but it was I think it had a little bit on tone. But it was more about just you know how we 
format things how um tony ellis hated using smorgasbord in reviews and <laughs> fucking despised that um, but it's it, it was something you you yeah would intuit i think and you would see that some newer writers who maybe hadn't read the mag since 1998 like i had didn't necessarily have that grounding with it and so maybe thought well i guess pc game is like writing for x website except it's more about pc games whereas i think that there is a you know like a a funny but smart tone and a like you know a sort of pc gaming to its core like just very deep-seated you know knowledge and history and legacy you carry around with you and i think it yeah weirdly though i don't know if that was written down as such but um it was just something you when you picked up the magazine you you knew it when you saw it so yeah it's interesting yeah is it i mean you do get that with like um freelancers like you when you get a pitch through you can always tell which ones hit, like read edge on a regular basis and which ones don't like there's just something there like you you can tell and you can you know you can work with new talent and kind of nurture that and and sort of get them into sort of understanding how how edge does things but you're not going to get that through the, the style guide like you know it's just stuff yeah. like the, one of the one of the things that kind of sticks out to me in the style guide is like under franchise it just says do not use this word in in all caps um <laughs> but yeah there's all it, it is like like you say samuel with the pc game one it's it's kind of a lot of that isn't sort of elaborated it's just kind of it's just yeah use this word don't use this word but um Ooh. yeah I, I... Absolutely. I think we had like a, a review specific one that was a bit more precise about what we wanted. But there's also an element of it where you think, you know, how fair is it to ask a younger generation of writers to have read a magazine for, you know, the last 15 years in the way that I had before I'd started working in games yeah. media? And it's the answer is it's not really. You have to make allowances for people, right? You have oh, to, yeah. they have their own way into, into things. It doesn't mean that they don't understand or respect what mm. you do but they just they inevitably grow up in a different world so you make different allowances right? yeah absolutely mm. yeah um and that that usually like when we work with a new york writer we usually sort of we don't ask them to submit stuff through the content management system like first thing it's usually like send us a google doc we'll kind of go through it in a little bit more detail and just kind of try and outline stuff you know stuff to do stuff to avoid a little bit more but yeah i i mean i think I like to think like the really the really diligent freelancers at least kind of try and like pick up a copy or you know get a, a digital copy of the mag and kind of look through it and like realize you know where they should be pitching and you know right. the sort of thing that we're into um and yeah the re- you know the best ones the ones that kind of tend to stick around longest do that so i suppose to to dig a bit deeper into the review stuff chris and i guess the name of this episode do you remember the first time well actually you've mentioned the yeah, half-life 2 10 was the first mm. edge 10 you remember as a regular reader was that your first encounter with the idea of an edge 10 being a big deal or, or were you kind of aware of it its history before that in the uh the 90s with the likes of super mario 64 and uh ocarina of time those kind of earlier 10s yeah i i remember that i think <sighs> I feel like the first time I was really kind of acutely aware of the Edge 10 being a massive deal was um, was Halo. And I remember that being a massive deal because um, that was like the first one in like three years or something like that. I think that was the first one since Ocarina. And mm-hmm. so that was, 
I can't remember whether I whether I bought that edition of the magazine, but I definitely was aware of it at that stage, and I was aware of like the weight that it had. I vividly remember being really excited when there was like three Edge tens in three successive issues, which was mm. there was Halo three and then the Orange Box and then um, Mario Galaxy, w- oh, yeah. which was just that was kind of like wow three like three tens in a row this is like we're you know we're feasting really here we're you know this is this is a golden age of of games kind of thing those were the sort of times that i became really sort of vividly aware of like the importance of an edge 10 and and that that was a like a massive deal it ages really well giving halo a 10 i think Mm. it really um it really i think it does indicate a a shifting of time and taste a little bit and the console front and so it's yeah it's i think it's you know while i don't necessarily think that you know you shouldn't um use the full range of score if you feel it's right there is like, like you say huge significance to three years between ocarina of time and halo so uh yeah um super interesting and then like even like even when i was a freelancer like each one after that was a surprise because it a 10 was always a closely guarded secret it was always like you don't tell anyone outside the inner circle what is getting a 10 like i remember uh funnily enough the the skyward sword 10 was <laughs> was the issue that that the uh the Ogscast piece that i mentioned was was published so that was kind of like a a nice sort of double whammy for me like his my first edge piece has been published alongside an edge 10 that was really exciting i suppose that's a good segue matthew so <laughs> people still bring up your skyward sword 10 a lot of the time when discussing Edge and the idea of an Edge 10, and usually in an unhelpful way, I would say, and not a particularly constructive way, a dismissive way. Where do you see that now? How do you feel about it as you know the person who thought long and hard about giving it that score? It's always annoying when anything becomes a bit of a clumsy shorthand um, for anything, um, especially if it's like becomes a kind of shorthand for like a bad call <laughs> right. um, which it arguably is i think there's a couple of edge tens which people are, find very questionable <laughs> and this is often one of them that's that's brought up i find it a little hard to untangle for the fact that like i'm fundamentally very proud of that that review and i stand by its thinking i think it, what it says is right Actually, like it's 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 funny. This week, I've been re- reading as many Edge Ten reviews as I can get my hands on for this episode because I was I was thinking about how many of these reviews did I actually know why these games got a ten? And going back and reading like some of the earlier ones and seeing the kind of justification there. And actually, this is a, a bit of a broad answer to this question, but I think it's I think it's it's worth saying. What is interesting about Edge is there are lots of like games you would probably consider like masterpieces or like seminal titles or shifts in genres that got nines and could have very easily been tens. Often, I thought the thread in the ten reviews was you could sense something just really clicking with someone. Like you know, it had the kind of edgier values of this is important for some reason or this is groundbreaking for some reason which i think is a bit of a common thread across the tens but then it was all you know that those reviews could have existed as nines and and just what pushed it over was and this really clicked the gran turismo review and i don't know if either of you have read this recently is a really interesting one because it is just someone who clearly fucking loves driving and this game happens to tap into 
and capture the driving experience better than any driving game had up until then. But like in the hands of someone who doesn't care about driving, that game ain't getting a 10, you know, in that same review process. Mm-hmm. I actually felt a bit of a kind of kindred spirit to that with Skyward Sword. I was into motion gaming. I had spent the last five, six years of my career just reviewing Wii motion games, basically, and Wii remote games and motion control games. I thought I was... I, You know, I know what a bad motion game is, and I know what the best ones kind of awaken in you. And this one, I thought, was... the, You know, I still think it is the best motion control game that I've played. And that's kind of where it was coming from. But obviously, you don't get that context in the same way that, like, you only have to infer that the Gran Turismo reviewer is a big motorhead. I think there's an interesting space where a 9 becomes a 10, basically, is my is the short answer. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to back you up on this, Matthew, because I gave Skyward Sword a 10 as well. Um, <laughs> admittedly not... Lots of people did. Yeah. Like, it's a really well-reviewed game. I mean, that's one defence of it. It's like, it wasn't just Edge Tech. I mean, that is a high-scoring game on Metacritic. I think IGN gave it a 10. Eurogamer gave it a 10. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on the idea that... And I think probably because I'd also played a lot of motion games and there was always this um I mean from from a lot of the American websites in particular that there was always this dismissal of motion um controls as waggle like regardless of whether it was actually waggle or not as you say Skyward Sword actually felt like they'd really kind of tried to it felt like Nintendo had tried to sort of make a game that was a total counter to those accusations that that motion yeah. controls were, were bullshit and it, it has that weird thing where you look back on it now and you kind of think it doesn't have like the space that that breath of the wild gives the player it's very very dense <laughs> it's very kind of packed like yeah. with um with puzzles so you don't get that sort of sense of you know that sense of freedom in, in terms of the like the exploration or anything like that but i remember at the time and i wondered after i'd like reviewed it that you do get a certain like when you spend a lot like a really kind of concentrated period of time with a game you get a sort of kind of Stockholm syndrome with it where you're just yeah, so that, attached yeah. to it it's, it's difficult to like you're almost too close to it after after that amount of time in like a short space of time I think that happens with like loads of big games I think you know the review the review period just does does that there's there's so many things which I like cool on a bit later or I'm a little bit like oh yikes yeah <laughs> I know no. I won't take any responsibility for any more of like dodgy edge scores that I may have given uh, <laughs> in recent years but like I you know I've given some things where I'm like oh man that game like really did a number on me <laughs> and uh, maybe with a bit of distance I would I might score it differently to bring it around to the 10 thing I just think there is a a vein of edge 10 reviews which are maybe more more heart picks than head picks mm. that occasionally get through. And they seem to be the ones which people are maybe more critical of or less into. But at the same time, all of those reviews come from a place of pure love. And I don't want to like, you know, the one thing I definitely don't want to do this episode is like challenge any of edge to, you know, every, every reviewer who gave one of those tens really believed in it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's super important. But like, you know, I maybe think of more things like like the Bayonetta review, for example, which is like such a heart pick and 
a game which clearly resonates with a with a huge genre head and that just comes through and like if you're on that same wavelength you'd be like 100 this this makes perfect sense but if you're outside of it and maybe that does suggest the existence of a more objective edge 10 which is kind of a bit colder harder and harder to argue with but that's my theory anyway <laughs> i do think you're always like when you're writing an edge 10 you are always kind of aware of that um like i was saying Mm. there is the kind of weight of history bearing down on you but i mean that's why it always sort of slightly rankles with me when people say that edge like doesn't love games because we like sometimes award something like we give like horizon a seven or something like that like you read a 10 an edge 10 review and that's like palpably not true because um, you can oh, just no, feel yeah. you can really feel the love I think in an edge 10 even if it's like a even if it feels a little bit more like a head pick um, there's there's always that love in there maybe that is more of an earlier edge thing because the reviews I've been reading like the the Mario 64 review which is that the first edge 10 yeah it's quite a technical appraisal of the game mm. you know maybe that is what impressed at the time but it, it, it talks more about the breakthroughs in terms of like, well, this texture work or or that this world exists or this kind of movement. It's it's not like a gut feeling. It's not like this like awoke something in me. Mm. It's uh, you know, it's quite a dry review. Like I, yeah. I would say, it doesn't really read like a text. <laughs> Hilariously, yeah. from from the experience of of having written one, is that I don't think you set out to write a ten review. You maybe write the review and then you get to the end and you're like. I've kind of made this argument, and this is where it's come to. Like, Mm. the the ten should be like natural conclusion at the end, rather than just like, oh, that doesn't really gel. But that Mario one is almost it's almost a little too like logical. You know, it's a little bit too kind of like, yes, well done. But maybe that is just like edge of the time as well. Yeah, I think I think that actually speaks to uh, what Samuel was saying that like maybe the editorial style has changed a little bit. Um, And but yeah, I. From my point of view, I I sort of slightly disagree with the, and perhaps it's because I've been sort of really close to Edge for a long time. Like Ooh. I think sometimes when you're reviewing a game, like you do get a sense of, n- not when you're writing the review, but when you're playing it, you sometimes think, oh, actually, I think this might be a ten. Um, okay. And I probably thought about that far more writing for edge like even as, as a freelancer right. than than i did like writing for other other magazines but then if, if you have that sense um this is such a funny topic because we're like talking around you know don't want to just be like i gave this 10 this 10 this yeah. 10 this you know like there's a there's still a semblance of mystery with this yeah um but if you have that feeling when you're actually writing the review do you find yourself kind of interrogating that sense is that what the review is is it kind of like i'm thinking 10 and then i'll see if it still has that at the end or what's i know kind of what i'm interested what's going through your head (laughs) yeah i I mean i've i've given out like three edge 10s now and it's been slightly different each time i think you know i think it's probably the most important edge score to get right and so i think over the mag's history there'd probably been a few times where games have got nine and then later I mean, I say, I, say just, I, th- I think that might have happened. I know it has, like, the writer will have admitted that it, it should have been a 10. You do sometimes find yourself second-guessing these these things because you're just kind of like, oh, is is it really a 10? What? And I think the reaction to it um, does kind of play into that a little bit, but it's mostly just kind of thinking about, like, what is 
the legacy of this game like does this do anything that is that feels kind of different that feels particularly remarkable and i think it's it's changed slightly in the sense that like an edge 10 used to mean revolutionary right and now it it doesn't necessarily have to be that it can just be something that is a real that is a game that should make you sit up and take notice it's a score that says here is a game that has some kind of real significance and if you're interested in video games you should strongly you know consider making time to play it um Mm. and it's interesting because I, i i can't imagine there are many other game publications that have part of their wikipedia entry like dedicated to the 10 out of 10s or where it's right or where it's big enough <laughs> yeah. to like warrant review scores uh news stories on, on on websites like i remember when the immortality review came out and like people were writing news stories about that it's like it's a, it's a big deal like mm. i think i think probably only like a famitsu 40 out of 40 is is the other the only other one that that really sort of comes close to that Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. On PC Gamer, we did have a sense of how high can the percentage go because we we know we gave Deus Ex this or Half Life that, and there was a bit of that to it. But Edge is quite specific in the sense that the tens feel in conversation with each other somewhat. It's still a short enough list that it feels like there is some kind of weird continuity that unites these games that otherwise might not have anything in common, which is quite unusual, right? <laughs> Yeah, just to like touch upon something else that I I've always kind of wondered is um, like particularly for an early edge ten I've I've sometimes wondered and the immortality one was was a kind of real case in point like I wondered if it had a slight influence on the reviews that followed like just in terms of perhaps emboldening people slightly to give it full marks if they were like oh, right like I, I really think this is brilliant but is it is is it like a nine or is it a 10 and then the fact that you know it gets an edge 10 and the edge 10 still kind of has that weight like in the parallel universe where i wuss out and give immortality a nine like what sort of effect does that have on its metacritic <laughs> right I, right I, I don't know yeah, I can yeah. see that. I can, you know, I definitely know some people who are uh, a little more nervous around scoring, or well, not nervous, but don't mind being in conversation with what other people are writing and saying. And personally, I've I've always liked to review in isolation yeah. a little bit and not really worry about it. But um, I can see that happening. It definitely helps like lead the charge a bit. You know, I can't think of there being many Edge tens where Edge is the only people who liked it. I don't think that's ever happened. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure right. anyone so, likes Bayonetta quite as much as Edge. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, weirdly, I think I, I think it's, it's probably Bayonetta 2 is the one that kind of stands out. As Edge 10s being... and sequels is an interesting one. Mm. Because if you do have this sense of maybe the old sense of like groundbreaking and maybe like you say, the kind of the idea of it has changed enough that it's like just, yeah, set up and pay attention. Almost by default, it, it, it feels weird talking about sequels and trying to put a score on sequels even if we're not talking about tens you know i've reviewed sequels for edge and i'm like oh man like should this just be what i think is this review in any kind of dialogue with what was said before that feels like weirdly more of a more of a minefield uh in edge than anywhere else i don't know why that is that might just be my own brain being dumb no i i think that's absolutely true yeah it's it's happened before like it's happened before to me like you you review a game and then you review its sequel and it's kind of like well this is 
probably slightly better but it's like it doesn't kind of quite give me the same feeling of like freshness that i had with the original one sort of interesting case, case in point although it's not it's not a 10 was um splatoon like the first platoon got a nine right and then the second got an eight and then like the third one got a seven and there's a case to be made for like splatoon 3 being objectively the best splatoon game yeah. but it's just it's essentially the same as the first and it's like almost like the curse of nintendo is that if they get so much right the first time like how do you yeah improve upon that the impressive work continues yeah you know? absolutely i mean th- there are exceptions to that like looking at the edge list like you've got super mario galaxy 2 which is just i mean that is a better game than than galaxy it just it just is mm. and it, it probably has enough new stuff in that to kind of justify full marks again i think but yeah at the same time it's it's not it doesn't fulfill that original sort of remit of of the edge 10 which was revolutionary because it's it, it's not but um Oof. but yeah it is yeah like you say it's a it's a real minefield and you, you kind of you find yourself sort of yeah really second guessing yourself when you're writing this stuff yeah it's interesting as well matthew you mentioned the mario 64 review being quite technical i suppose if you've never seen anything like that before, how do you explain it? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, there isn't a predecessor as such you can point at and go... To compare it to a 2D game, which is what they do in the Ocarina of Time review as well, they talk about A Link to the Past. It's like you're just you're you're looking at a new frontier. It's really hard to, yeah. to get your head around it. So I can sort of see why in that specific instance they were you know wrestling with that a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's like no cliches to rely on. Um, no easy crutches in that sense. We have it easy now. Like you've seen everything there can possibly be, and it's all just <laughs> variations or cocktails of what came before. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, maybe. I still think it's quite a hard, quite a hard-edged review. <laughs> and it's just yeah. sort of funny. There's a oh, there was what was it in there? There was a like one of its one of its criticisms was really odd. I remember you mentioned that the story criticism in Ocarina of Time review was a bit odd in retrospect because it's something about i think like americanisms in the in the text and oh it's a bit of a strange thing to pull out it was about. a real but yeah that was it it was just a real that yeah that was definitely in the ocarina review it just it just read like a real like minor bugbear in something which you're giving like your third ever 10 and you're saying is this like huge generational leap from what came before and yet you're like, but while I'm here, you know, <laughs> I just have to get this off my chest. <laughs> I think that reviews as well, there was maybe a time where they were slightly more laundry listy than a kind of like a constructed bit of prose, I guess. it was. There was a little bit of, you know, like you, you do get to the point in the review where you kind of like list the stuff that doesn't work for you. And maybe that was slightly more of a, like a 90s and noughties phenomenon. And maybe now reviews are a bit more the writing styles has changed. I don't know. Maybe yeah. there was just a sense of we've got to tick off something. I'm not sure. It's, it's, still, a, it's still a good so, review. Yeah. So what oh, you're yeah. saying is, like, Edge is much better now than it used to be? In <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, it, it, like, it's just funny that it, people's memory of Edge is, is that it's it writes these games, like, incredibly hard and it's very sophisticated yeah. and it's very, you know, highfalutin in its takes. 
I was reading. It's not a it's not a ten review, but I was reading the review of Metal Gear Solid One this week. I shared this with Sam actually. You know, it's talking about how this is like quite revolutionary in terms of its storytelling and the kind of like depth of its systems and how playful it is. And then there's a quote where it says, "It's odd then that Konami should choose to erode some of the realism it's worked so hard to create by representing weapons and ammo as floating, rotating boxes." And <laughs> Uh, you're just like what <laughs> like that feels like well i gotta say something bad here or, or i've got to give it a 10 <laughs> i suppose it is true that if you think about the amount of realism in metal gear solid in terms of like snow tracks yes and yeah, snake is... breathing then there is you know maybe that contrast does seem surprising in yeah. that I, I can sort of see that but, but it's you the, know, i don't know now i see it, it's just the visual language of those games because they so religiously stuck to that quite abstracted style that you yeah. were like oh this is uh, this is intention now i think you'd be like wow what a bold kind of authorial vision to to stick with these kind of deliberately strange icons but it's funny though you jump forward nine years from there and matthew you compiled in your reviews the grand theft Auto 4 review and i found the writing style in that one so much warmer than the, the 90s ones and you know there was a such like a a rich appreciation for what GTA 4 was trying to achieve in that text and it really did it really did feel like the midpoint between what I consider 90s edge and what I consider edge now you know so mm. it's just yeah you, you do see that journey manifest and you know the the text that supports these tens for sure Chris I had like one more question on this um and obviously you'll come back one day and we'll do the edge six episode <laughs> where we talk about that yes. whole process um that'd be fun um but what is the process like when giving out an edge 10 you kind of alluded to it there you you sort of know what it is but how safeguarded is the 10 for the the right moment essentially for two of the ones that I've done, like the the reviews come in so late in the issue that it's just kind of been on trust kind of thing. Mm. You have to be absolutely certain. There have been some cases where I've nearly given a 10 and it's just kind of like if there is even the slightest hint of doubt, then you should not do it. Then you should kind yeah. of hold it back. Have you dodged any real bullets? Like, have, were there any nearly 10s where now you're like, yeah, absolutely not. No, I don't. I mean, I okay. don't think so. Like, um, it was interesting. There was um, in the the Spelunky Two issue, and at the time we hadn't given out any tens to any indie games, and right. that was the issue that we reviewed that, and we reviewed Hades in the same issue, and there was a big long debate about whether we should sort of give one of them a 10 because they were both sort of really kind of close and I, yeah, I wasn't yeah. quite feeling it with Spelunky 2 and with Hades it was kind of closer but at the same time just the way the mag was allocated like we'd done Spelunky 2 was the lead review because it was an exclusive and it was on the cover Yeah, and it just like as much as anything it just sort of felt weird that we were putting this game on the cover and saying giving it a 9 and then here's another game in the same genre and we're giving it a 10. It was like, why wouldn't you put that <laughs> right. on the cover instead? Um, but yeah, it was... <laughs> what a fuck you. <laughs> yeah, so I do, like, part of me does wonder if 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 we'd reviewed Hades, like, an issue later, whether that might have kind of been the oh, first. interesting. But at the same time, like, it was, it was just kind of a really nice moment when we gave it to Immortality because that ended up being, like, yeah. quite a big deal. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Yeah, I think, like you say, it sort of... Um you know, create some momentum and expectation and, you know, it it's a you know, as we say the Edge Ten is still a real event, so uh yeah, that's uh that, that's cool. It's exciting. Once someone once you know there's one out there, there's one in the mix or there's one in the wild, 
you know, there's like, oh, what's it going to be? I'm really excited to see what the, like, you do, I do find myself sometimes, like, going through the release schedules and thinking, could that be the next Edge 10? That's always quite an exciting thing to do. Um, mm. um, yeah, I've looked through. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be another one for the rest of this year, but, you know, you never know. <laughs> Something might come along and uh, sort of shock us. I suppose, like, is it worth us asking you about Tears the Kingdom, Chris? Y- you can do, yeah. <laughs> it's something we talk about every week on this podcast now. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I suppose, like, what was your journey with that game like? Because it did seem, like you say, maybe the only natural 10 candidate on the calendar. So, yeah, like, um, I, I suppose in relation to the Edge 10, what was your journey with that game like? Yeah, that was interesting because, um, yeah, there were times during Tears of the Kingdom, certainly kind of earlier on, where I was like, I'm not. I'm not sure this is a 10 and then kind of gradually it sort of crept up and and then I was like yeah this this is and I was more and more confident about it the interesting thing was that um I don't do this often because I like to like Matthew you were saying you like to kind of review stuff in in isolation but I remembered it I I was discussing it with with Keza and with uh with Keza McDonald Guardian games editor and with edwin evans thirlwell who sometimes writes for edge but um was reviewing it for eurogamer kicked its face off on eurogamer yeah i mean they were both slightly (laughs) cooler on it than me and so that was kind of like a point at which i thought am i going to be sort of hauled over the coals for giving this a 10 um kind of thing but i think um like i think keza was sort of like saying it was the controls of it. I think it was like we, we were discussing that and how it's kind of perhaps not immediately accessible. Like there's a lot of kind of fiddling around with ultra hand and how that works. Like once I got to grips with that and, and some of it is like the, the pressure of like just the review situation. I mean, it's it was really weird that compared to say something like the, the Bayonetta spin-off thing, like we got like far less time with nintendo's biggest game in years than we did with this bayonetta spin-off it's like right yeah yeah and so really kind of hammering it over the period of a week was like not not the ideal way to play it that's rough but yeah it's i took a whole week off to just do that like no joy i just had holiday and just zelda and i felt like i barely made a dent on it really i mean as as i was saying to um someone i think it was i think it's in the next issue we like we had a reader who sort of said thank you for your sacrifice kind of thing i was like well you know there are worse <laughs> jobs than playing like 70 hours of <laughs> zelda in, like, yeah yeah a few days like um pity the poor guy who got Gollum um to review like <laughs> jesus like that's you know that's that's the sacrifice that's the real sacrifice <laughs> what I suppose since you've given it the a ten, Chris, obviously it is such a dense game. What's your journey with Tears of the Kingdom been like since that review came out, and you can just enjoy the the breadth of it at your own leisure? Oh God, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just nice to be able to kind of not sort of um, I mean, what I try to deli- what I really, and I think it helped having kind of um, having done Breath of the Wild was that I spent a lot of the early time of the review session just messing about, like deliberately just kind of testing the limits of all these powers as much as I could. Because I felt like that was getting a better flavour of the game than just like exclusively pursuing the story stuff, which you tend to do like when you're 
you know when you're really against the clock you kind of like have to really rinse the story and and i ended up sort of like crunching that towards the end a little bit but it was um yeah definitely a lot of my early hours with that were just sort of messing about and then since it's just been kind of more messing about just really like maxing out my battery meter and just seeing what i can do with Mm. you know the various powers and um auto build and is is just such a yeah such a time saver and then like just pursuing a lot of the side quests that we did like there's a bit before the play intro in edge where we have like still playing and like all three entries of this this next issue are all dedicated to tears of the kingdom <laughs> as just an excuse to kind of write a little bit more about it about the stuff that we <laughs> yeah. that i've enjoyed <laughs> since then so yeah yeah it's a really interesting one because i think like more so than than any of the other like truly great nintendo games that i've probably played in the last 10 years or whatever it does take more time to bed in yeah and you have to like learn it once you do you realize like just how sort of exceptionally infinite a lot of it is but your relationship with that game just changes so so drastically and breath of the wild i just don't think that's true of breath of the wild i think like the core magic of that game makes itself known very quickly i think if i'm honest i think i think that's contributed to like i feel like the reviews of breath of the wild were were probably on the whole slightly better than the tears of the kingdom one because only since i wrote my review i've read a lot of the other kind of coverage and there's only been like one or two that i think really kind of got to the core of what's special about it like um yeah simon parkin did a really really good piece oh, for that's the fantastic new yorker which i feel like is one of the very few and this is not to kind of like because i you know i don't think that i kind of quite manage like i don't think it's the best review i've ever written but i think there are (laughs) it's just a 10 (laughs) yeah it's just a 10 but you know like it is such as you say it's such a difficult game to pin down and i think the the time constraints meant that a lot of people just had to kind of skate over the surface a little bit and and not really Mm. kind of manage to really really capture what makes it so special in in a way that i think a lot of people kind of managed a little bit more more easier easily with uh with breath of the wild yeah that's super interesting well uh yeah thanks for your insight there chris so yeah that's uh we've come to the end of this episode is there anything else you wanted to sort of like mention here chris or or plug the uh, for stuff you've got coming up in edge yeah next issue is is um we've got um I really can't say what it is. We've got a bona fide exclusive on the cover, um, which oh. is really exciting. Um, from a from an established developer doing something like that they're really good at. Um, that's all I say about that. But it's a, it's a really oh. exciting cover feature. You're going to have to tell us when we s- stop recording this episode. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I guess I just kind of want to give a shout out to various people who I've not had a chance to sort of thank or, or kind of credit for you know my career so far like there there are so many people that have been you know influential um on my career and just like particularly i think nathan and jen um during my time on edge have, have just been super you know supportive in 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 very different ways kind of helping me become a better writer i think those those are two big ones and um you know alex as well who i work with now is just a, an absolute joy to work with so and you too, of course. It was um, always oh. always lovely to to work with That's you. That's right. Um, thank you. So. I was just a very tetchy, overworked editor, Chris. You don't need to thank me. 
<laughs> no, we, we've always always said it. One of one of the most uh, one of the most reliable in the biz, and I think reliable sometimes comes with a sort of. It, f- it feels like a bit of an underhand compliment of like sort of reliable, safe, but mm. um, you are just so technically reliable and a great writer and thinker about games. Like honestly, Chris, you've you've like an absolute boon throughout my times on mags. Yeah, likewise. Um, Thank you. Yeah. That, that really, really does mean a lot. Well, with the backpacking done, we can uh, wrap up this uh, this episode. It's been um, yeah, it's been so great to have you on, Chris. So thanks so much for your insight and for uh, yeah for for sharing um, you know a little bit of a snapshot of what what it's like on Edge Magazine. We really appreciate it. So uh, definitely encourage people to go and check it out if you're not read Edge for a while. And um, I think we've sold a few Edge subscriptions through this podcast, according to our Discord. Did we so, get uh, e-commerce yeah. on that? <laughs> nah, we didn't do it. Put an affiliate link in there, so oh. uh, fucked it. Fucked it, frankly. So uh, we learnt nothing from future. <laughs> yeah, that was like the whole thing. Oh, that's funny. Um, Chris, where can people get you on social media? Uh, yes, I'm uh, at Shilling C on on Twitter. Um, that's about it, really. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So uh, I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. Matthew, where are you? At Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. Backpage Pod if you want to follow the podcast. Patreon.com/slash Backpage Pod if you want to support the podcast. And uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.